Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I mean, it's very clear to me that to, to understand why that government was so successful, you need to understand Bevin, Bevan, NHS, NATO. Hi, and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. That was Andrew Adonis, who recently released a book on Labour's post-war foreign secretary, Ernest Bevin. For the Progressive Britain podcast, Andrew talked about his new book to David Taylor of the Labour Campaign for International Development. Conversation moved from Bevin's achievements within the Attlee government, including forming NATO, through his role as a trade unionist, to what his legacy means for foreign policy today. It's an absorbing discussion, so I'll stop rambling. Here's David Taylor and Andrew Adonis. Well, thanks very much, everyone, for listening to this podcast today. We've got with us Andrew Adonis, who has written this fantastic biography of um, Ernest Bevin. And we are here to, to talk with him about the book and about the implications it has for Labour today. So hello, Andrew, and uh, wow, what a, what a book. It, I believe you said it took about a year of your, your life. What, what was it that made you uh, think of writing this biography and uh, how, how was it writing this book? Well, hi, it's great to be with you. And uh, it's great to be talking about Ernie Bevin because we need to restore him to a central place in Labour's history. Uh, he's got written out of the script, oddly, given how great he was, he, he should be a central part of the script. Partly it was fortuitous that uh, his name, Bevin, got confused with Bevan. And Bevan, of course, uh, Nye Bevan, is the patron saint of the Labour Party in many ways because of the creation of the National Health Service in 1948. But there was something deeper going on too. Ernie Bevan was a trade union leader. Uh, indeed, he made his name as uh, a phenomenal trade union leader, the founder of the Transport and General Workers Union, which became the largest union in the free world in the 1930s. And Labour and the, and the trade unions have always had an uncomfortable relationship, and there haven't been any big trade union figures in the, in the Labour Party since Ernie Bevin and the 1950s. So even though Labour pays lip service to its links with the unions, and of course in the party structure, the unions are important, they haven't been, in terms of trade union leaders, a key part of Labour's narrative. And so what people thought at the time was going to be the first of a new breed, Ernie Bevin, big trade union leader who transitions into being 
Minister of War of Labour during the war and then Foreign Secretary turns out to be the first and the last. But there's also a, another factor too, which is that Ernie Bevan was a great, uh, what we would now call pragmatist. He was a, a very um, radical social democrat. Uh, he, he, he was constantly negotiating uh, for better terms and conditions for his members. He was a driving force behind the 1945 Labour government in its uh, social mission as well as its um, uh, political purpose. But he came to be seen as a pragmatist, particularly on issues of foreign policy, where his greatest achievement was the foundation of NATO and the transatlantic alliance in 1949. And Labour's always had problems with pragmatists, as, as somebody who served in Tony Blair's government. I'm only too well aware of the fact that the Labour left in particular always demonises and turns against the very pragmatists who make Labour governments possible. And that's the combination of him being a trade unionist, working class and a pragmatist who founded NATO, was a champion of Britain's nuclear deterrent, all kinds of things which the Labour left felt uncomfortable with, meant he essentially got written out of the script. And since he himself died in 1951, before the end of the Attlee government, he didn't come to write any of the script himself. So unlike um, uh, Bevan and indeed Churchill, of course, was, was a, a past master at rewriting history, uh, Bevin was at the mercy of others, and the main thing that others did to him after 1951 was total neglect, and that's why I felt I needed to, to write this biography. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and, and that's the first thing I wanted to, to pick up with you, actually, is on that foreign policy issue and that issue of the, the sort of battle, really, for the soul of the Labour Party on some of these issues, because at the Labour Campaign for International Development, one of our biggest concerns over the last five years has been the anti-Western ideology of the hard left when it has come to foreign policy, which often has seen them whitewash the crimes of, of Putin, Iran, Chavez and so on, but just because they're, they're anti-American. And it's interesting that the same battle was playing out at the time within uh, the Labour Party. And, it, and it's interesting that the, 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 uh, the last five years, they've tried to position themselves as the true heirs of the Atlee government. And yet, as you clearly show in, in this book. I couldn't be further from the truth when it comes to, to foreign policy, given Bevin's pivotal role in, in being anti-communist and, and seeing Stalin for what he was and being the driving force behind NATO. So to begin with, it'd be great if you could just talk us through, first of all, how that battle played out within Labour at the time, and, and secondly, how he came to form NATO as foreign secretary. All, all those points, David, you've just made are very, very well made, and they're reflected in my book. It's very clear to me that if you're analysing the legacy of the Attlee government for Labour, then it's the twin foundations of the NHS and NATO, Bevan and Bevin, which you need to look to to understand its success. It was a great social reforming government. It was also a government that stood up patriotically for not just British interests, but Western interests democracy, liberalism, freedom internationally. And it was prepared to stand up to the, both the far right and the far left in doing so. And you need to see that legacy as a whole. And as I said, the bit of that legacy that actually involved allying with the United States, creating the state of West Germany, which I think was in many ways Ernie Bevan's greatest achievement was creating a democratic state of West Germany, which was intended to stand against the communist state of East Germany. So. You need to see this in its ideological context. That was absolutely crucial. But Ernie's great insight, Ernie Bevan's great insight, 
was that the fascist far right and the communist far left were equal threats both to democracy and to social democracy. And that goes back to the 1930s because Ernie starts out as a foremost champion of British and then later American resistance to fascism and Hitler. And indeed, in many ways, he has a better record of standing up to fascism than Winston Churchill because uh, Ernie Bevan never had truck with dictators of any kind. And he was an immediate and early opponent of Mussolini's when Mussolini... Uh, uses the Italian state to invade um, Ethiopia, then called Abyssinia, in the mid-1930s. And at the time, even that stand was unpopular on the left. The then leader of the Labour Party, George Lansbury, uh, is, is forced out of office because he won't support the League of Nations deploying military force to stop Mussolini. And at the time, Churchill's quite quiet on Mussolini because... He regards Mussolini as in many ways the saviour of Italy, whereas Ernie Bevin sees that the rise of Mussolini and this aggressive, violent international fascism is going to undermine uh, European democracy. And he gets to that before Hitler gets going. But Ernie's great insight is that the communist far left under Stalin is an equal threat, that there isn't somehow you know, a better... Uh, situation on the left and on the right when it comes to megalomaniac dictators. And after 1945, when his Labour's foreign secretary, he stands up to Stalin, who, remember, wants to spread the Soviet uh, communist model across Western Europe, not just Eastern Europe. He stands up to him with every bit as much passion and resolution as he had fought Mussolini and Hitler before. And it's that which is the key to understanding Bevin, is that he could see that social democracy, that is uh, uh, socialism uh, with uh, a, a democratic um, underpinning, which is the basis of, of Labourism in Britain, wasn't uh, conceived of as many saw it as on a spectrum with communism. It was fundamentally different that the totalitarian and dictatorial part of communism meant that it was fundamentally apart from European-style social democracy and it needed to be opposed and uprooted and that it had far more in common, Stalinist communism, with Hitlerite fascism than with European social democracy. And that vital insight which underpins uh, Ernie Bevin's politics when he's leading the Transport and General Workers Union, when he moves to get um, uh, uh, the change in the Labour leadership in the mid-1930s to put Attlee in, uh, rather than George Lansbury, who'd wanted to appease the dictators, and then again when he's serving under Churchill as Minister of Labour during the war, and then as Foreign Secretary after the war, I think is the absolutely vital underpinning of Labour's success as, as a political and electoral force in the 1940s. Yes, absolutely. I want to ask, in terms of the implications for for foreign policy today, what are that? What's Bevin's legacy, and and what would Bevin be doing today if he was uh, trying to advise Keir and and Lisa Nandy on what Labour's foreign policy sh- should be today? Well, there are two very clear lessons from uh, Ernie Bevin. The first is never, never, never appease. Uh, tyrannical dictators. Now, you have to make judgments as to what that means in practice when you're dealing with Putin, Xi, and so on. But your your principle of action should be to contain them 
not to appease them. His policy after 1945 in respect of Stalin was not, uh, you know, lurches into, into stupid military ventures which would have failed, but it was a systematic and very intelligent policy of containment. And as I said, its, its first uh, great fruit after 1945 was the creation of the democratic state of West Germany, which is formed by Britain and the United States putting their two zones together in Western Europe and, and turning them into a state which had been strongly opposed by many on the left because they thought that would be provocative vis-a-vis um, Stalin and the Soviet Union. But in fact, it was absolutely essential to maintaining the bedrock of, uh, of Western democracy and social democracy. So, for example, in the case of Hong Kong, I'm sure that Ernie Bevan would, would be wanting to offer guarantees of, of uh, Western citizenship to Hong Kong residents so that if, if the situation deteriorates, they're able to get out. And more to the point, to show a very, very clear message to President Xi that, that uh, the West isn't going to stand idly by if, uh, if he rampages over Hong Kong. But the second uh, and other side of the coin to that, which I'm sure that Ernie Bevan would be propagating very powerfully, is that the whole reason why you're standing up to the dictators is because you're demonstrating that life is better and will get progressively better in the West. And I'm sure he would be a strong champion of DFID, international development, which he was in the 1940s. And I think, though this is more controversial, that he would have been a, a strong champion of Britain's continued membership of the European Union. It's controversial because Ernie Bevin opposed the creation of the European Coal and Steel Community in 1950, in the last year of his foreign secretaryship. And that became the European Union by you know, many reincarnations through the customs union and the single market and so on over the next 30 years. But Ernie Bevan was a great pragmatist and a great realist. And he never dismantled institutions that were working in the cause of democracy and social democracy. And I don't for a moment believe that in the situation we're in in 2020, with a, a, a strongly functioning and very effective European Union, which is the bedrock of our partnership in particular with France and Germany, and which has a social chapter and the protection of labour rights and environmental rights at its core. I don't for a moment think he would have been in favour of Brexit and leaving the EU. So it's this constant determination to make life better in the West, but to draw red lines in the sand against the advance of dictators that I think is Ernie Bevan's legacy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Turning to more to domestic matters uh, for a moment, it was interesting that to read, and I, I didn't realize this, that actually Bevan was widely predicted to become chancellor after the uh, war. Could you um, talk us through why Attlee made the decision to, to make him foreign secretary? And more interestingly, what do you think he would have been like had he been chancellor? How, how do you think things would have played out differently in that post-war Attlee government had he been a chancellor? himself. Well, Ernie Bevin wanted to be Chancellor in 1945. And that's the reason why Attlee nearly made him Chancellor, because even though Attlee's preference all the way through was to make him Foreign Secretary, because as he put it, facing Stalin, you don't need a sniper, you need a tank. And he understood that uh, that Bevin was uh, had all of the tank-like qualities, you know, absolutely massive in physical presence, but also would uh, always speak out and wasn't going to take any uh, nonsense from dictators. Uh, nonetheless, Ernie wanted to be chancellor because his own area, as he saw it, of expertise was in public works and in developing a Keynesian agenda in the 1920s and 30s, a very unlikely partnership, which I set out in the book, in a whole chapter of the book, is between Bevin and John Maynard Keynes, the transformational economist in the 20s and 30s, when Keynes is providing intellectual arguments against laissez-faire and the refusal of governments to intervene and to create jobs and the public works and investment programmes on which jobs depend in the face of the slump after 1929, uh, Keynes is putting forward the intellectual ideas and Bevin is there as the leader of a great union, many of whose members are being made unemployed, arguing in a practical way as to what those big schemes of public works and what the actual you know, contracts that can be between the trade unions and the state would be in response. And so you get the theoretician in Keynes and the practical trade union and labour leader in Bevin who come together, but they come together around what is a very radically new and bold program. When people say that the problem with moderates and pragmatists is that they often go slow on reform. That absolutely wasn't the case with Bevin. Bevin's partnership with Keynes is intellectually and politically transformational in the 1920s and 30s. And it leads most famously to the 1944 employment white paper of the coalition government, the Labour Churchill coalition government, at the end of the war, which commits the post-war government, whatever its colour, to maintaining quote unquote, a high and stable level of employment. Now, this is the first time that any government has made a categoric commitment to maintaining full employment. It was a revolutionary uh, step in politics of the time. Intellectually, it was revolutionary. It's what we now call Keynesianism. But that was a, a big, bold program of change in the 1940s. It wasn't the status quo. And it was to implement that that Bevin wanted to be chancellor. And what would he have done? I think he would have been absolutely resolute in creating an industrial policy after 1945 that safeguarded and advanced full employment, and in particular, making Britain a big centre of industrial production. And looking back at the things that didn't work so well in the 1945 government, it wasn't, it, though it created a great welfare state, it didn't modernise British industry. And I think the, the missing legacy of the 45 government, which Ernie Bevan might well have um, 
played some part in rectifying if he'd been chancellor, was a, a long-run reform of British industry that made British industry competitive. And that's as relevant today in the 2020s as it was in the 1940s. And presumably it would have led to a, a, a situation akin to the, the Nordic countries where uh, you had that partnership that we, you talk about in the book between Bevin as a trade union leader trying to be pragmatic with industry uh, and with government to try and get a better situation for workers and perhaps the breakdown that occurred in the 60s and 70s w- wouldn't have occurred if, if Bevin had been in place longer. I think there's a lot in that argument. Of course, the problem with counterfactuals is you never know what would have happened in a different circumstance. But it's certainly true that Bevin, in his person, as leader of the Transport and General Workers Union, as well as a key figure in uh, in the Labour government of 1945, stood for the unity of the unions and the state. Indeed, his argument was that his, his mission was to make the unions a pillar of the state. A very notable thing about the 1945 to 51 government is that unlike the Wilson government and the Callaghan governments in the 1960s and 70s, even though they go through very tough economic times, Ackley and Bevin, there's never a breakdown in relations with the unions. And when it comes to having pay restraint in the late 1940s to prevent massive inflation, the unions agree to it and they agree to it in, in no small part because of the leadership of Ernie Bevin. So I think your point is very well made that if Ernie had been Chancellor rather than Foreign Secretary, a, a much deeper and stronger relationship between the unions and the Labour government would have um, would have been embedded, much uh, more akin to what happens between social democratic governments and the trade unions in Scandinavia and in Australia, actually, at the same time. And it was a great pity that didn't happen. But on the other hand, if he hadn't been Foreign Secretary, it's perfectly possible that, uh, that there would have been some kind of a, a deal uh, with Stalin that would have led to uh, a neutral um, and very weak uh, German state. So I, I don't for a moment think that uh, we were better off having him as, um, as Chancellor or Foreign Secretary because his achievements as Foreign Secretary, I think, were absolutely indispensable to the creation of a stable uh, Western Europe, which was safe for democracy and kept Stalin out. So. Uh, it just goes to show that he was a very, very important figure and all the contributions he made, almost without exception, the big exception being, alas, Palestine and the anti-Semitic streak in Ernie Bevin. That apart, I think they were almost all positive and not negative. Yeah, it's, um, it's a shame in, in many respects there wasn't more more than one of him and that his health was in, in better shape, especially towards the end of his life, in terms of the, the things that we might have been in, in, in transforming this country further. Sticking on the trade union point, your last chapter, you talk about the implications of trade unionism today, and I wanted to discuss that a bit more. If he was a trade union leader today, what would he be doing to try and uh, regenerate support for trade unionism in the UK? I I think there's a really interesting point you make in here about how the TNG provided some care homes for retired workers, and you, you speculate that maybe that's something that unions could look to do today to provide say, care home for retired workers or provide affordable housing. What would that look like? I mean, is that something you think that Unite and Unison could afford to do? Are there other unions in the US or Germany or elsewhere that are doing something similar? I thought that was a really interesting idea that I've not sort of come across before. So it'd be great to talk about that a bit. 
Bevin was a great union modernizer to an extent that isn't realized because, of course, his modernizations then became the status quo afterwards. And he modernizes in two, well, in three respects, really, which are absolutely crucial to putting the labor movement at the heart of um, the British state in, in the mid 20th century. Firstly, he recruits uh, hundreds of thousands of members from previously ununionized sectors. The Transport and General Workers Union, which grows out of the Dockers Union, takes trade unionism into whole sectors, uh, the road haulage business, uh, the chemical and, uh, and related industries, a whole set of uh, industries in the 20s and 30s where the unions hadn't been present before. And I think the parallel today is the gig economy and the care sector, huge sectors of low paid working class people who basically aren't unionized. And an Ernie Bevin today, I'm absolutely convinced, would be systematically unionizing those sectors and making them big and relevant in, in the labor movement of today. The second big thing that Ernie Bevin did was to make unions relevant in terms of offering uh, new and better services, which uh, people wanted in their day. And as you rightly said, he was uh, 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 way ahead of his time, not only in creating care homes, which was a big thing the TNG did in the 20s and 30s, but also the notion of paid holidays and the creation of whole companies, the Workers' Travel Association and, and other companies, and, and, and Bucklins. Uh, Ernie Bevan was there at the creation of Bucklins, the original uh, Bucklins in the late 1930s, so that uh, working class people could get decent holidays, which were both paid and high quality. And that was a revolutionary idea in the 20s and 30s, and Ernie was behind it. But the third area where I think he would have uh, been big and bold today was that uh, successful trade union leaders should also be successful leaders of the Labour Party. He didn't see industrial organisation as separate from political organisation, which was the common view at the time, including by the big uh, trade unions in the United States. He saw them as two sides of the same coin. And I think that today, not only would serious Ernie Bevin type trade union leaders be unionising new sectors, creating a new offer, including, as you've just said, uh, areas like you know housing for younger people, which you which is very hard to get at the moment, and I'm sure Ernie would have been there. But he would have been four square behind sensible Labour leadership at a national level, and there's a, just such a leader in Keir Starmer to create a big industrial hinterland for them, which would make the sum more than the parts. And alas, as we look at the state of the Labour Party and the trade unions today, we need big action on all three of those agendas, unionising sectors that aren't unionised, creating a modern and um, attractive offer, particularly to younger trade unionists and workers, and aligning powerful trade union leadership with the national leadership of the Labour Party. All three of those agendas, I think, are absolutely central agendas to Labour's revival in the 2020s. Turning again to, to foreign policy, from a, from a Labour campaign for international development perspective, obviously the, the bit that was made me most uncomfortable was, was reading his and, and Atlee's uh, views and record on when it came to, to the British Empire. Given how good he was on international solidarity elsewhere, particularly with regards to Europe and, and America, what, what explains this? And there's a bit you mentioned that he was a believer in imperial development, as, as, as you write, as a socialist alternative to decolonization. Uh, what, what did that mean? And is there, is there anything good we can say regarding 
that he did on decolonization or to further self-determination over his time uh, as foreign secretary? Well, this is a very difficult and, I'll be quite frank, quite uncomfortable bit of the Bevin story. The crucial thing to understand is that all serious political leaders in the 1940s, it changed in the 1950s and 60s, but in the 1940s, when Bevin was foreign secretary, all serious political leaders, whether they were Labour or Tory, were imperialists. Uh, They'd all been born in the Victorian era, uh, uh, you know, mostly in the 1880s and 1890s. So they remembered, you know, the high point of the empire, and they couldn't conceive of a world in which the British Empire wasn't a major building block. Uh, and that was as true of the the, the, the uh, really serious modernizers of empire as of those people who were more avowed imperialists. So uh, Clem Attlee, who I think comes out of this story, the imperial story, remarkably well, in that he was the one who faced up to the fact that it was simply going to be unsustainable for Britain to remain the imperial power in India. And he forced the pace to setting a date by which Britain would leave, which Ernie Bevin opposed, as indeed did a lot of other members of the 1945 Labour government, because they thought that was too radical a policy. But even Clem Attlee, who was, as it were, in the vanguard of pragmatic decolonisation in the 1940s, he would still have described himself as an imperialist. And he certainly didn't think that the age of the British Empire was over. On the contrary, he thought that without a strong British Empire, Britain itself wouldn't be prosperous. And the territories which Britain was still ruling, even after Britain had left India, would become very unstable and quite possibly communist. So everyone serious in politics in the 40s was on the imperial spectrum The only question is where. It's only when you get into the 50s with nationalist movements sweeping across the whole of the British Empire, not just in India, that attitudes change. And the defining moment then comes in 1956 and the Suez Crisis, when it's clear that Britain can only remain in most of the rest of its empire by force, not by consent. And at that point, the left moves into being um, uh, decolonizers in a big way. So that's the, the, as it were, the explanation. It's not a defence, it's an explanation of Ernie Bevin's uh, position. Um, But he is in the mainstream of imperialism. He's not particularly a moderniser. He talks about the language, as you said, David, of uh, of imperial development. And that's in his speeches. But the absolute truth is that the Labour government of 45 doesn't do much in terms of imperial development. And its main concern is to use the empire as a source of raw materials and um, markets to maintain British power and and uh, and the, sta- the standard of living of people at home. And uh, if Ernie had been more forward-looking on imperial matters, uh, he would have uh, been in favour of a more rapid pace of decolonisation than in fact took place after 1945. Well, uh, it's a challenge to, to the Labour Party to, to, I suppose, right the wrongs of the, the past. And that's always been a driver of my... Uh, interest in international development, the sense that Britain had this past record and that we had a duty to to try and put things right in the world. And it's obviously not the 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 only driver. And we can talk very proudly of the record that the Labour government had from 1997 onwards, and indeed creating an overseas development department under Wilson. But, but it just goes to show that this is something we continually need to to reconcile with our past, and and we need to keep. That's completely right. That's absolutely the lesson I think we should draw from the 1945 government. And as I say, it wasn't all bad. And in particular, um, getting out of India in the way we did was, was, a, was a bold statement that when faced with 
democratic nationalism which was capable of taking over government. We weren't going to stand in its way, ultimately. So that was a, a hugely important precedent. I mean, can you seriously imagine Churchill having withdrawn from India uh, within two or three years of, of um, the end of the war? It's not credible. So uh, it's a mixed record, but the imperative for international development and for bolstering international democracy, I think, is a very, very, very big lesson that you, you should take from the 1940s. And finally, this is a man who went from being a, a, an orphan, age eight, living in absolutely grinding poverty, to to not only one of Britain's greatest leaders, but a, a leading figure in in world history. Can, can we end this podcast by just talking a bit about his life, please? Now, when we talk about social mobility and people coming from um, deprived and working class backgrounds and really making it in life, I mean, there is almost no better textbook account than Ernie Bevin. I mean, Ernie Bevin, who's the not only uh, an orphan by the age of eight, um, but straight out of the uh, the, the rural uh, labouring working class, uh, no education beyond the age of 11, no chance even to go to secondary school, let alone onto university, who makes it at the heart of the British state by means of the trade union movement and by becoming a trade union leader. And as part of that, educating himself, going to Workers' Education Association classes, going to night extension classes at the University of Bristol when he's a, a drayman, a barrow boy, delivering mineral water to uh, across Bristol before the First World War. It is an absolutely amazing personal life story. One of the most remarkable things about uh, Ernie Bevin compared to later Labour history is that though Labour talks the talk about life chances, people getting on from whatever their background and so on, very few people who've come to the top of the Labour Party have in fact walked the walk. There are very few uh, Labour leaders who have themselves been uh, working class from a poor and really seriously underprivileged background who've got to the top. If you look at the three uh, Labour prime ministers there have been uh, who've won elections. Clem Attlee, um, comfortable middle-class backgrounds, uh, became a barrister, went to, went to Oxford and so on. Much the same uh, with Harold Wilson and uh, with Tony Blair thereafter. Ernie Bevan is very unusual in being the real article, the working-class uh, boy, no education beyond the age of 11, makes it up through the trade unions, which is his means of social mobility, educates himself very largely, and never gives up that background, even as he becomes uh, a minister under Churchill and, uh, and foreign secretary. I think that's a real uh, object lesson in how it is possible to make it in Britain today as much as in the past. And I hope that that story, the personal story of you know this Bristol Barrow boy who becomes one of the greatest statesman in the world i hope that uh, people read that and think you know particularly many younger uh, readers think wow if uh, ernie could make it then i can certainly make it and so could people like me well thanks very much andrew it's been fantastic talking to you today about this book and would absolutely encourage everyone to 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 buy it to download it and to read it because it's uh, a really fascinating piece of of labor's history and as andrew says a, a really inspirational story as well Thanks, David, and I hope your listeners enjoy reading the book.